Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. We're going to continue our sermon series, Letters to the Churches, tonight. Can I see that sermon series graphic? For all you note takers, this is our third week in the uh, message. We have been moving through the book of Revelation, uh, considering that God wrote letters, Jesus rather, wrote letters to the seven churches of Revelation, churches that were, churches that existed, and churches that are that still are and are relevant to the end time period, uh, we should probably find out what they say. We as the church at large don't spend enough time in Revelation, in my opinion. Uh, many pastors, many pastors, unfortunately, in my experience, would rather not touch Revelation because uh, it's not as easy to teach a, a lesson of self-improvement or make you feel better about yourself kind of message when you're studying uh, such uh, what can seem like cryptic prophecy at times, but I'm telling you, there's nothing more rewarding than studying the book of Revelation because as a matter of fact, this is the only book in the entire Bible that carries with it a special blessing for the reader. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, it doesn't even just say that for the reader. It says, anybody who even listens to this, be read. So the reader or the hearer of this word, there is a special blessing for you tonight. So I hope you've got your Bibles and I hope you've got them opened up to Revelation chapter 2 already because Revelation, it simply means in the Greek, the unveiling. And what beautiful symbology is that when we think of a veil? We think of what? We think of weddings. We think of brides. We think of the bride of Christ. We think of lifting the veil and looking at looking upon each other face to face for uh, symbolically is meant to be the first time right so uh, one day we will look face to face with Jesus the ever, truly everything will be unveiled and we'll gaze into his eye his eyes of fire face to face and what a beautiful moment that will be well this is a this is a hint to that moment that Jesus has given John to give us the seven uh, to give the the, the churches an unveiling of knowledge, truth, and prophecy. So, it's the consummation of all things, essentially. Where do we find the book of Revelation in our Bibles? If you're thumbing through the Bible, is it in the beginning, the middle, or where is it? Somebody write it down. You know where it is. It's in the end, right? That's because it's the consummation of all things, church. It is the only book in the Bible that promises the special blessing, like I said. It's 404 verses containing over 800 allusions from the Old Testament, indirect references. That's a lot. It presents the climax of God's plan for mankind. And we know that, that this revelation was given, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 reads that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, for his servants. So the Father has given Jesus this revelation for his servants. So it's given to Jesus in, uh, last week, in the week before. We also uh, discovered that in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, we find a little clarity. In studying Revelation, it might be hard to understand if we just simply dive right in, but that God is so good, He's given us a divine outline. Can I see that real quick? We have a divine outline that God has given us. Chapter 1 is the vision of Christ. He said to John, He said, write, write the things which thou hast seen, right? The things that you've seen in the past. And then He said, and the things which are the present, the seven churches, real churches of that day which are outlined in chapters 2 and 3. And then in uh, verse 20, he said, and the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter there in the Greek is that word metatauta, which means after these things, after what things? After the church. So he's got the vision of Christ, write the things which are, and then write the things that are to happen after the churches, after the church age as well. In verse 20, we find the explanation of the symbolism of that vision. Let's read that just to recap, because we got to remember this stuff as we move forward, because it's, it's heavy lifting in Scripture, but Scripture sets up Scripture. So let's read Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. 
the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So this is a wonderful example. You know, a lot of times I'll hear people say, oh, the Bible is just so hard to understand. You know, there's uh, all kinds of different metaphors. And I read something and, I, you know, how can you believe the Bible word for word? And I say, no, I believe the Bible word for word. I'm a literalist when it comes to the word of God because I believe it says what it means and it means what it says. And people say, well, how can you do that when it's so full of metaphors and, and idioms? Well, the beautiful thing, and this is a perfect example, is... Uh, 10 times out of 10, if the Bible gives a metaphor, it's explained either later in Scripture or immediately in Scripture. And this is one of those cases where the metaphor given is explained immediately in the Scripture. So what were the seven churches? All right, The seven stars are the angels, and the seven lampstands are the churches. What churches? Can I see this next graphic? We're moving quickly now. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So far, we've only moved through the first two of those last week. Today, we, we are hoping to take down number three, okay? We're going to be pretty thorough uh, through working through this list, okay? Why these seven? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Rome? They were big churches at the time. Well, we have these reasons. Can I see those reasons? Well, these were actual churches, we know that thanks to Sir William Ramsey. He's a researcher, archaeologist. He uh, f found them all, documented all. They were real, actual churches. These were real people with real problems, with real heartbreak, with real struggle, real churches that Jesus loved. And he wrote them churches, uh, wrote them letters, wrote them letters through to be delivered through John. These were real churches. That's why these churches, these were the churches that were dealing with specifically these things that they needed to hear from God on these things. Also, it says churches, right? It says churches there, point two. Churches means that each message applies to every other church in some degree. It's not just to the church. It says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, okay? So, just because the, uh, the advice that the Church of Sardis is getting isn't necessarily what, what Thyatira needs to hear at that moment, they might not be dealing with this specifically the same thing, they still need to hear it because they may deal with it to some degree or another or in the future, right? So this is, this is uh, admonitory uh, instruction here for all of the churches. And also... When he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. That's our third point. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Do, are you hearing this? Are you the church? Are you a member of the Ecclesia, the ecclesia of, of Christ? Of course you are. So these letters even apply to us. Anyone who hears it, let them hear. And point four, point four, we didn't have this on there last week because I didn't want to get to it yet, but there's also prophetic reasons, I believe, that these specific seven churches were uh, chosen and specifically chosen in the order that they were. Now, uh, this will take a couple weeks to, to bear out. I'll, I'll show you a little bit of this towards the end of our lesson tonight. But, but as we bear this out, the potential historic significance of why these seven churches and why are they written and delivered to us in this order, it's pretty incredible. I think there's some uh, real relevance in order to, uh, or in relation to uh, history, where history is concerned. So... Let's hit one more recap before we jump into, uh, jump into the next church. There are design elements in every, uh, in every letter to each church, okay? Design, there's first, things, first thing that Jesus does is he names himself. He gives himself a title. Well, actually, excuse me. He names the church. He mentions the church. Then he mentions himself, tells them who he is, gives himself a title. Then he gives them a commendation, right? Tells them what they're doing well. Then he shares with them next what... He's concerned for them about. I'm concerned for you because of this and that. And then he gives them encouragement, exhortation. And then he gives them a promise. And this is interesting. This is one of the coolest things about uh, these seven letters, in my opinion. He gives a promise to the overcomer, quote unquote, okay? And he says, he that hath an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there it is. And he says that 
seven times elsewhere in the New Testament. Is it any coincidence, really, that it's the number seven? <laughs> I'm just telling you. The number seven, the number three. The different numbers are special to God, and they pop up all the time. Seven is the number of completion in uh, Gematria, the study of numbers in regard, regards to uh, the Scripture. So seven different times throughout the New Testament, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But who is this overcomer? A promise to the overcomer. Who is that really? Well, beautifully, uh, like I said, a lot of times certain scriptures uh, explain themselves in other places of scripture. And, and this is one of those right here. First John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5 tells us who the overcomer is. And I think you're going to love the answer. Let's read it. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith has overcome the world. Amen. Somebody say amen on this feed with me. You with me, Life Story Church? Come on. Let's get excited about this tonight. My goodness. Our faith. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Is that you? Then you are an overcomer. And there's a promise to the overcomer in each of these seven letters. So, what have we learned so far in regards to the first two churches? I want to take you back to last week just with this next graphic. In case you didn't take this note, I didn't have it on a graphic laid out just like this for you last week, so I went ahead and made it. You note takers love me. I know it. Let's see this next graphic. What we learned last week from the first two churches, Ephesus... Ephesus was the church, remember, when God uh, uh, shared with them his concern, he said, don't, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten your first love. So from Ephesus, we learn uh, devotion, not just doctrine. The first church, they were, they were, oh my goodness, this church in Ephesus, well, you look at the writings of Paul and Timothy, they were fierce about doctrine, right? Paul warning about wolves coming in that would try to mislead people, mislead uh, gullible people, right? Uh, wolves that would rise up from within the church and try to leave many astray, right? Uh, they were hugely fierce about protecting doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. This is the way it's supposed to be done. That's the way it's supposed to be done. So this church, what we're, what we're discerning here is that church in Ephesus was so about doing it by the book and making sure they didn't get anything wrong that they lost the heart of why they were doing it in the first place. Okay, And that can, that's something that can happen to all of us in any area of life, but it, it this can certainly happen to us when we're volunteering at church a lot, right? Or when we're working in the church or in the ministry in any capacity. We can't forget our first love and why the reason why we're doing it in the first place. And then Smyrna. Uh, what did we learn from Smyrna? The, the uh, encouragement to endure the persecution. Myrrh, smyrrh, myrrh. That's where we get myrrh, right? As uh, a root word of that. That's an embalming uh, uh, gift that was brought by the uh, uh, the three kings that came to visit Jesus, but we know it wasn't really three probably, right? Uh, the wise men that came and visited Jesus when he was a toddler, they brought myrrh, which was prophetic of his death and everything, but it's suggestive of how, uh, of how uh, uh, crushing the persecution would be for this church in Smyrna. Actually, the process of making myrrh involves crushing, and and so the church uh, in Smyrna would be persecuted so greatly, and we'll touch on that again in a little bit, actually, once we start working through Pergamos here. But they endured persecution, so we learned two things. Don't lose your first love, okay? we got to hold on to doctrine. We've got to be fierce about defending doctrine. And we, want, we need to pursue excellence and want to do everything the right way, but we can't forget why we got into it in the first place. We can't, we can't lose our love for Jesus. And that's, it's Jesus is what it's all about at the end of the day. And we need to be willing to, uh, to uh, endure the persecution. So the letter to Pergamos. You guys ready for this? I know you are. And I love being a part of a church that just loves the Word of God and loves to study it, don't you? That's awesome. These Wednesday nights have been fun, haven't they? So let me see a little bit about Pergamos. I'm going to teach you about Pergamos tonight because there's a lot to learn, actually. And you'll understand 
you'll understand Jesus' letter to them a lot more if you understand what I'm about to show you. Can I see that first graphic? Pergamus means mixed marriage. Okay? Basically, uh, per means mixed. Uh, gamos means marriage. So it's suggestive of bigamy is two. Polygamy is many, right? Get that in context. It's marriage, mixed marriage. In other words, this is the church that married the world married the world. It was known as the city of the serpent in ancient times. As a matter of fact, during those days, Ephesus was a great political center. Smyrna was a great commercial center. And Pergamos was the great religious center. As a matter of fact, Zeus is said to have been born there. And there was such an altar to Zeus that was there. Uh, it stood on a foundation that was 125 feet by 115 feet, and it was 50 feet tall, and it was surrounded, colonnaded, uh, uh, an enclosure of columns all the way around it. Can I see this next graphic? The caduceus was the official emblem of the city. Originally, it emerged from the brazen serpent of Moses in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8 through 9. It was explained by Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 14. And it was destroyed by Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. The false god Esculapius, Esculapius, sorry, I spent all afternoon trying to get, make sure I could pronounce that right. <laughs> Esculapius held the caduceus. He held it in his hand, okay? He was known as the god of healing, among other things. Tell me if these pictures along the bottom here look familiar. There's Esculapius there. He's holding his, his uh, uh, rod there, his caduceus. Look at that next picture over. That's an old picture, old picture, my goodness, with all of the different drawings of them. There we see an ancient stone over in the Middle East, in the region, found in stone carvings. And there you see it today. It's a popular uh, medical symbol. And you even see it on our Blue Cross and Blue Shield logo. As a matter of fact, if you're just driving through town at nighttime, you'll see these emblems lit up on hospitals all over the place. You know, I always thought it was interesting. I thought it was maybe some sort of religious or Catholic symbol or something like that. But really, at the end of the day, is what it is, is pagan. It's about a Greek god of healing. Uh, basically ripped off, <laughs> ripped off the, the serpent on the pole symbol and co-opted it for their own purposes, as often happens, okay? Okay, so this false god, stay with me here, of Pergamus, this false god of Pergamus, Asculapius, okay, Asculapius, uh, known as the god of healing, among other things, okay, his story arc, are you ready for this, was virtually identical to that of Nimrod. And we know who Nimrod is, right? Nimrod was the founder of the great Babylon religion. Boy, this Pergamus hole is getting pretty deep pretty quick, isn't it? So, the Nimrod, the founder of the great Babylon religion, if you've never studied anything about him, maybe you've just read across him once in the Bible. Let me tell you a bit about who he was real quick. He was considered to be the sun god long before Saul Invictus was of the, of the Constantine area, era. He was known as the sun god who was resurrected every morning, right? The sun goes down and it comes up and they'd say, oh, the sun god, he's risen. Here he is, right? Uh, he was married to, and we actually mentioned this on a Sunday. It's funny how the Holy Spirit leads us uh, one thing into another. But uh, Sem Semiramis was his wife. And Tammuz was their child, and uh, he was. A sp it's their their story arc is complicated. Trust me. Ultimately, Semiramis becomes involved with her her son. The uh, Nimrod is supposedly reborn through Tammuz. All of this pagan craziness, right? Well, get this. You know a guy named King Cyrus, don't you? In your Bibles. You know about this guy, King Cyrus? Well, when King Cyrus conquered Babylon, 
Okay, when the ba when the Babylonians were all throwing a party, they were uh, reveling and drinking with the t uh, the holy uh, elements of the temple. Uh, King Cyrus stopped up the water and he walked through the river, which was normally full. Walked through the river on dry land and conquered the city without a battle. And that's a beautiful study. We do that in a sermon series called King Me. Sometimes we'll have to. We'll have to dust that off again sometime. But King Cyrus, when he conquered Babylon, the Babylonian priesthood fled. They fled. And they set up shop, guess where? Does anybody want to guess? Somebody say it. Andrew, you want to say it, don't you? Pergamus. They set up in Pergamus. Bringing the religion and rebranding the whole religion, this Babylonian religion, with Greek names uh, before they would ultimately spread to Rome. So let me just sh uh, show you this next graphic real quick, because everything always goes back to Babylon. Can I see this next graphic? Semiramis, I just briefly explained to you, to who, you, to you who they are, and Tammuz of Babylon. Moving to Phoenicia, they're the same false gods, same false deities from Babylon, but they get new names for their new area code. Astoreth, you've read that name in the Bible, and Tamas of Phoenicia. They, you moved, they moved to Egypt, and they got new names there, Isis and Horus, or Egypt. They moved to Greece, and you get Aphrodite and Eros of Greece, and of course, uh, being in Greece before they moved on in uh, Pergamus, it was Asclepius. Gosh, I love that name. And then, of course, Venus and Cupid of Rome. <clears throat> and we can thank Alexander Hyssop for his work on putting that together. Church, essentially, the point I'm trying to make here, in painting this picture of what Pergamus is and what it looked like with this real church, with real people, with real problems that lived there, that really loved Jesus. You understand me? This is where they were living. Every false religion has its roots in Babylon, and that's what was happening right there. It was a center for pagan false religion. So who, who was it that these uh, Pergamites, I guess you can call them, were truly worshiping? Nimrod. And who was Nimrod? Nimrod was the first type of Antichrist. He was the first type in your Bible of Antichrist. And if, he is, if that's who he is, then who is he really? You'll understand why I'm going to these lengths to explain all of this to you in just a moment once I read this first section of the letter to Pergamos. Are you ready to do it? Let's do it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Let's read. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, here comes your title of Christ, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And what is a two-edged sword in the Bible? We know what that is, church, don't we? Of course we do. It's the Word of God. Amen. Here comes his commendation to them. He says, I know your works. I see you, right? And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Oh my gosh. Wow. And you hold fast to my name. Oh, my goodness. So here he is. And I know where you are. I know how hard it is. You're, for crying out loud, you're where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name. Let's keep reading. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There it is again. He doubles down. And anytime the, the Bible doubles down on something, you better believe it means what it's saying. That's so interesting, isn't it? But first, let me mention, who is this Antipas who is my faithful martyr? We don't know exactly. There's a lot of different conjectures as to who he might be. But obviously, he was an uh, uh, early church member who was faithful in the face of... Um, uh, of pressure. He held to, the held to the faith, okay? He did not mix himself with the world, okay? And he was killed for it. But let me back up to this incredibly interesting point. It, 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 interesting to me, that Satan has a throne in a certain place on earth among you where Satan dwells. Does Satan have a throne? Well, let's talk about uh, 
let's talk about what we know about Satan, okay? Can I see this next graphic? Let's work through that. Here's something we know about Satan. We can find out a lot from, about him from the Word of God. Well, first thing that we know, first thing that we know is that he's real. We know he's real. There is a movement today that wants to say that there, you know, he's just an idea. It's an idea of what's against us. Satan's not real. Hell's not real. That's a, uh, that is an ideology that is being propagated uh, to great degrees in the apostate church in America right now. So if you hear that, if you hear your pastor preaching or teaching that hell is not real and that Satan is not real, but an idea or, you know, uh, the counter to, you know, a counter idea to virtue or something like that, hit the road, okay? I'm telling you, that's not a place where you want to be, okay? Where confusion is being sown. We know that he is real. We know that he is not omnipresent. We know that he's not like God. He can't be everywhere at the same time. I know sometimes it feels like he is. I know probably... A million people across this earth right now feel like Satan is breathing down their neck or hounding them. But he's not everywhere at the same time. He can't be. He's a created being thing. He's not omnipresent, okay? So we need to know that, okay? If he's over uh, at your house trying to knock down your door, he's not at my house, right? But, I know, but he's, got these, he's got legions of demons that are doing his work across this world. So it can feel like he's everywhere. I know that, but... Trust me, he's not. He's not omnipresent. He is, he is, though, territorial. We know from Daniel chapter 10, Revelation chapter 9, verse 14. Do me a favor and screenshot this, guys. Or if you're watching it on your TV, take a picture of it. You can check this out uh, for yourselves later. It'll be a good study for you. Okay, Just this one page would be a good study. Now, he's territorial, Revelation 9, 14, Revelation 16. He has a domain. He has a vast kingdom. Okay, Matthew chapter 25, he offered Jesus the, the, the kingdoms, right? Took him up on the hill and said, all you see will be yours, right? Uh, why didn't Jesus just dismiss him right away, right? Uh, you can't give away what's, what's not yours, right? If I drive over to the nicest house in town uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> set up a meeting with somebody I find on Craigslist and say, hey, I'm going to sell you this great house, I pull up and say, hey, this is, isn't this a beautiful house? I'll sell it to you for $10 million. Let's do a deal right now. But I don't even have the keys to get in the door. They're not going to buy the house from me. Why? Because it's not my house. It's not, I have no authority to buy the house, right? So we know that Satan does have an authority, a degree of authority, and a degree of authority that he usurped from Adam in the garden. So he's got a vast kingdom. Uh, and he also, First John chapter uh, 5 verse 19 tells us that uh, he is behind the world system. He's running this world system. And as a matter of fact, as we ramp up to this one world system, uh, it seems like we're inching closer to that with every day that goes by. We'll see, hopefully watching from the mezzanine, uh, from the balcony, uh, we'll see uh, how much power he truly will wield through that uh, global system. We know that he's a murderer. We know that he is a deceiver. We know that he is a liar. John chapter 8, Revelation 12, 2 Corinthians 11, and 1 John 3. Murderer, deceiver, liar, sinner. We also know that he's our adversary. 1 Timothy 5, 1 Peter 5. We know that he is the accuser of the brethren. Oh, and is he not, truly? <laughs> is he not always coming to us and accusing us of of being unworthy, of being uh, um, uh, precocious, of just any time you're making a difference for God and you're going you're gonna to take a risk and you want to step out, you want to share your heart, you want to open yourself up to somebody else, does the enemy not come to you and say, who, nobody wants to hear from you. Who do you think you are? They know who you really are. They're going to see right through you. He's the accuser. He is the accuser. He is the accuser. Remember uh, uh, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, you're the son of, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, operating with uh, uh, demonic powers. And he said, I'll tell you who you are, right? He said, you're, you're the sons of Satan. That's who your father is, right? So they're claiming to be, they're claiming to be uh, uh, sons of Abraham, this, that, and the other, and uh, operating with demonic power. And he said, no, 
you think you're the sons of Abraham, I'll tell you who you are. Because they're coming to him with that voice of the accuser. That's who he is, okay? And he'll use whom he can use to be that voice. He's the accuser of the brethren. Let's keep going. He is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He is the prince and power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Which is really interesting when you think of multidimensional stuff and how this is revelation will play out truly in the end. Uh, he is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And isn't that fascinating? Uh, I can think of some disobedient children that are operating in the streets of Portland right now. Uh, there might be a correlation there that somebody should look into. Uh, he is the enemy of sowed tares. He is the one who sows tares among the wheat fields and in the churches and in our families and our homes. And Jesus says, uh, when the servants say, should we pull them up? Jesus says, no, wait till the end. Wait till the end, because if you try to pull up the tares, you may uproot the wheat in the process, and the wheat are, t are too precious to risk that. So too often we look around this world and we say, Lord, just cut the wheat out. Pull them up by the root and get them out of here. And we're like, why don't you do that, Lord? It's because he's letting the wheat and the tares grow side by side so as not to uproot any wheat unintentionally and harm them because they're precious to him. Instead, he'll wait till the time is right and the trumpet will sound and he'll send his angels from the four winds and they'll gather up the tares and he'll gather them in bundles and burn them in the fields at the exact same moment the wheat he'll gather into his storehouse. Beautiful. And then Matthew 13, study that one. Uh, he is also the wicked one. Six different times in, uh, in Scripture, he is referred to as the wicked one. And I didn't list all those for you guys, but you can find them. Let's keep reading. Let's go back to Matthew, or excuse me, to Revelation uh, verse 14, 2 verse 14. Pergamos. <clears throat> but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, and this is so interesting, who taught, who taught Balak, Balak was the king of the Moabites, if you remember the story, okay, uh, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Oh my gosh, this is so relevant for what the church is dealing with today. <laughs> so, these, so they have the children of Israel, you see the correlation here. He's writing this to this specific church of Pergamos for a reason, because this is something that they're struggling with. What did Israel struggle with? They were led into uh, sexual immorality and to eat things that were sacrificed to idols, things that they were commanded not to do, specifically a disobedient and immoral, okay? And he was, he, the doctrine of Balaam led them into this. Well, if, we've, if you know the story, uh, Balaam is an interesting character. He really is. He, he was a prophet, he was given the gift of prophecy, and he could hear and speak to direct, directly to God. And uh, the king of the Moabites, Balak, and I don't have time to study the story tonight, so just let me give you a summary of it. The king of the Moabites, Balak, had, said, had called for him. Called for him because he knew that he heard directly from the, the God of the Hebrews, uh, the God of the Israelites. So he called for him. So Balaam talks to God and he says, should I go? And God said, no. Balaam prayed again and he said, should I go? He's really calling me. He really wants to talk to me. God said, no again. The third time, Balaam goes to God and he says, should I go? Should I go? He's still calling for me. God says, go, go, do what you have to do, right? He's like, oh, okay. I mean, think, to me, that just says, how many times do we find ourselves in a similar situation where, where it's like, God, should I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? And God's like, no, no, no. Well, what, you're you're going to do it anyway, apparently. You guys do what you've got to do, right? So uh, sometimes it's... Uh, we get confused what God will permit us to do with what, uh, what he's telling us to do, okay? Just because he permits you to do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should, especially if he's already told you two times prior not to, right? So put that one in your back pocket. Maybe that's for somebody out there. 
Um, so in the process, he goes and he meets with Balak, and Balak says, you know, uh, hey, curse Israel. Curse, put a curse on Israel. And uh, talk to God and have him curse Israel. And, ba and Balaam has an honest moment. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding me? I would never do that, no. But I will tell you, you how to beat them. I won't beat them for you, but I'll tell you how to beat them. And he tells them, you know what you need to do is you need to get your most beautiful women. You got to dress them up really gorgeous and get them, put them outside the camp. And what will happen is all of the men will come and have them like a big buffet out there, right? And the men will come out and they'll, they'll mingle with the women. They'll marry the women. And then what they'll do is they'll bring their pagan God, your pagan gods into their camp and into, into their tents and their homes. And that's how you'll win. That's how you'll get them. Put a pin in this and don't forget this, okay, as we, as we move forward tonight, okay? It's all, something's going to come back to this moment right here, okay? That's how the enemy works so many times, okay? He couldn't get them on, the, on his face, but there's an element of infiltration at work here. Okay, so Prophet Balaam, let me give you a, a couple other references on him real quick. Can I see that next graphic? The Prophet Balaam. Here we have uh, the doctrine of Balaam was mentioned, okay, which and mentioned within the context of spiritual unchastity, okay, marriage to the world, okay, in Second uh, Peter, uh, verse uh, chapter two, verse fifteen, Peter mentions the way of Balaam, talking about how he was a hireling, talking about how he was making a market for his gift. Yeah, I've got this gift from God, so pay me, and I'll use it to do whatever, even if it goes against what God is telling me to do, even if it was betraying his own people, or, or not his own people. He was likely, he was likely Iraqi, but we don't know for sure of that area. Anyway, uh, he still had the gift. He could still talk to. Uh, to Yahweh, though. Uh, the error of Balaam was mentioned in Jude chapter 11 in reference to sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. Okay, so that's an issue that this church has had. He says, a few things I have had against you, okay, a few things I've had against you because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have people there in your church that are sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. Hear me now, church. Is the Holy Spirit convicting anybody on this right now in your heart? Let it do so. Own that. Let bring correction to it. Okay? If, when I say this, you feel guilty. That's a gift from God. He's giving you emotions as a gift so that when you feel that guilt, you'll course correct. Okay? This I have against you, that you sacrifice eternal riches for temporal gain. You make a market out of your gifting. Okay? Uh, that's, you're spiritually unchaste and you have married the world. Oh, man, that'll preach. Come on now. Is this relevant for the church today? Come on now. Is this relevant for the church today? Somebody give me a high five or an amen or something out there, okay? Help me out, church. Is this relevant for the church today? Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Well, that's not good. <laughs> Didn't we just uh, read last week about the Nicolaitans? They were those that would, uh, conjecture to a degree here, but they were those that would use the power of the clergy to manipulate people and to rule over laity and control. Which thing I hate, which is the thing that he hates. So, you're you taking your gift... You're sacrificing it for temporal gains. You're making a market out of it. You've married the world. You're spiritually unchaste. And you're using the power and authority that you've got now in the church in my name to rule over the laity when that's the opposite of the order. In the order of God, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. The way up is down and the way down is up. Yet here they are. They've set this whole thing up, church. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. He says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, and you know 
what the sword of his mouth is, don't you? It is the truth because it is the word of God. Verse 17, let's keep reading. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now here's the promise to the overcomer. To him who overcomes, who is the overcomer? Remember from the beginning? It's he who believes in faith. He too, here's the promise to the overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And this is so cool because what is hidden manna, right? We don't know what that is unless we read our Bibles and we come across John chapter 6, verse 35, which is where Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life, right? Manna, by, it, manna, the word itself in the Hebrew just means, what is it? They looked at it and they're like, what is it? They, they think that the most li likely the thing that they could correlate it to the most is like a coriander seed kind of thing, right? So they had manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, six days a week it would appear, and on the sixth day they'd get a double portion because none would appear on uh, Sunday because they didn't want them to go, or Saturday because they didn't want them to go out on the Sabbath, right? So, um, <laughs> manna, 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 manna. What is it? This kind of thing that they were given from God, provision in the wilderness and whatnot. He says, I will give you hidden manna. Well, what is hidden manna? Well, that's a direct reference to John chapter 6, 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And this is really cool. Let's keep reading to eat. And he said, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, there's a lot of good scholars that have tried to figure out exactly what this means. And to be honest with you, nobody, nobody knows for sure. Nobody can say. It's all conjecture. But interestingly enough, historically, in Pergamos, in the Rome, which was a, a, you know, part of the Roman Empire at that time, what you would receive as somebody who lived in the city is you, re you would receive a little white stone. And on that stone, they would carve your name into that stone. And that stone was like your ticket. Ticket to the games, to the, uh, you know, the, the gladiator games, the chariot races, all of that stuff. Think Roman Empire uh, stuff here. Uh, so that stone was your pass into the games. It was your pass for food, and it was your pass for drink. And so, uh, some that's that feels like the closest one that I've read anyway. So, uh, so again, conjecture. But he said, "I will give a white stone." And see, that would be that would be relevant to the real church that was Pergamus at that time. The real men and women would get that reference if that's what he truly is talking about. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, again, in regards to the outline of these letters, we find that the promise of the overcomer comes after the hear that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me, let's, let's recap now. Let's, we've covered a lot, right, in a short period of time. So let's pack it all back in and bring it back around. What have we learned from the first three churches so far? Okay, can I see that uh, next graphic? We learned with Ephesus, devotion, not doctrine, don't lose your first love. Okay, you think that's relevant to the church today? Of course it is. Smyrna, endure persecution. Is that relevant to the church today? I think in America, people are about to find out on a, on a level that they would never anticipate, that never, never would have anticipated in, in the past. Certainly, ask the church in Syria uh, if we're enduring persecution today. As a matter of fact, 80% of all pers religious persecution that happens in the world today happens against Christians. And we in the United States need to be aware of that. And sadly, much of the church is not. Smyrna, what was the, uh, or Pergamos, what was the third one? What did we see? Avoid spiritual compromise. Do not marry the world. Can we learn that? Does the church need this message today? Last week I said that I think this might be the most, the church that is here alive today you know, this message of these letters to the seven churches, it might be more relevant to us than to, it was to any other church in history. Um, certainly equally, uh, if not more so. Because the church is truly infected with marriage to the world. Truly, truly church. You know, earlier I gave you four reasons. Uh, four reasons uh, why these churches. Remember that? I said, well, why these seven churches? 
you know, we talked about uh, that they were, you know, actual churches. That's why. And they needed the help. They needed the advice. We talked about churches, meaning that these letters did, don't just apply to those churches. They certainly apply to us still, don't they? Yeah. So they also would have applied to each other. The letter to Thyatira was very relevant still to the church of Sardis. And then when Jesus said, he that hath an ear, you know, uh, let him hear, we know that, again, that refers to anybody that hears, which we're hearing it, right? And then fourthly, can I see that next graphic? Fourthly, prophetic in order, historically. Is it relevant, truly? And if so, how prophetically? Some scholars believe, and this is what I want to get back to now, I told you we'd get to this, some scholars believe that it's no coincidence that the churches are listed in the order that they are listed in. Some believe that each church represents an era in church history as well. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be incredible, as a matter of fact? Uh, well, let's take a look at the prophetic profile right here. We see it, Ephesus. Ephesus, what was, what was it about the first church, and I mean the first century church, what was it about them that stands apart? Doctrine. Man, they guarded that doctrine. Paul and Timothy talking to each other. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Protect the doctrine. Letters of the first church fathers, early church fathers that you can find, find in the anti-Nicene uh, collections. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Protect the truth. The church of Smyrna. The per, are they the persecuted church that shortly after suffered such, such harsh persecution? First from the Jews, but then from Rome itself as they went through uh, such a long stretch of Caesar after Caesar, emperor after emperor, torturing and murdering them in the Colosseums. Peter and Paul even being killed in the Colosseums, beheaded, crucified upside down, persecuted. And then we come to Pergamos, a married church. Now, how is, what does that mean? Well, I bring this, I'm bringing this all to up to right now, once we're here. I think this is a good place now that we've got a little bit of this under our belt. Uh, because I think it's a good time to start thinking about the possibility that these could be uh, in this order to outline church history as well. And let's, let me share with you uh, something. And you'll see where my thinking is at on this, okay? Uh, Rome, Rome was founded in 753 BC, okay? It subdued Italy. It subdued Carthage. It subdued Greece, Asia Minor, Spain, Gaul, Britain, uh, the Teutons, all before conquering Judea in 63 BC. All right, are you with me? We know the Romans were in uh, uh, were there at the time of Jesus, right? Well, back it up, 63 BC. So if Christ was crucified in 32 AD, you got to back it up uh, another 64 uh, years before you even hit the year zero. So uh, at its zenith, I want you to think about that, 753 BC, subdued all of those nations before we even get to Judea in 63 BC. It's a long time. At its zenith, at its biggest, it spanned from the Atlantic Sea to the Euphrates and from the Northern Sea to the African Desert with a population of 120 million people back then. And that's probably a low estimation. Can I see this map? I've got a map for you guys to make this, to drive this home. Look at that. All the way up to Britain, all the way down to Egypt, as far south as the Nile goes there. All of that was Rome at its greatest extent, church. They had to get creative to get this thing together, to keep this thing unified. Thus, come back to me now. Thus, Augustus did something. He knew he needed to do something to bring his people together, to create a bond between all of them as this empire was so large. Look at, think of that map and all of the different cultures that now called themselves Romans. I mean, you think we're a melting pot. Come on. Okay? So Augustus instituted Caesar worship. Caesar worship to give the empire a bond of common sentiment. Let's see this next graphic. Can we see it? 
Although Pergamus was not the seat of authority in the empire, Pergamus became the center of official of the official religion of emperor worship. The first temple was erected in 27 AD, fully adopting the cult practices of the city, trading out Asculapius, remember Nimrod in other words, and all of the cult worship activities towards him, they just swapped Caesar into that position. And under Vespasian then, so think of that, wrap your mind around that, all of the cult Babylonian Nimrod worship stuff that went into it, now they're worshiping Caesar in like mind, like way, okay? Under Vespasian, it then became a test of loyalty. The next emperor, Vespasian, became a test of loyalty. You would have to offer incense to the statue of the emperor. Essentially, you would go to the uh, altar, you'd take a pinch of the incense, you'd put it in. Uh, they would see that you did it and that you uh, honored the god Caesar, and they would give you a certificate. You're good for a year now. You can imagine this was a big problem for the Christians. The Christians, especially, by the way, uh, Smyrna was only some 45 miles away in that ballpark. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the, the, the Christians, when this came about, they really began to see persecution. But this was obviously horrible for the Christians, okay? Until, if we jump forward... If we jump forward a couple hundred years, we come to Constantine's edict. So, I know it's, it's a big jump to just jump forward a couple hundred years. But I want you to imagine Caesar worship, Christians being punished because they will not bow the knee to anybody but their Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, uh, Caesar after Caesar after Caesar... They're, they're punished, they're uh, persecuted, persecuted, persecuted. Uh, uh, some emperors horribly persecuting Christians more so than others. Some emperors hunting them down even. Just horrible, horrible uh, dark age for the Christian faith living on the run, yet, yet while persecuted, growing. Because whenever you persecute Christianity, it burns brighter all the more. So... We're jumping forward, though, for the sake of time tonight, because I could go through a list of uh, Caesars for you and all that horrible stuff. But if we jump forward a couple hundred years, we come to Constantine's edict. Constantine wrote an edict of toleration in 325 AD, which established in the Roman Empire freedom of religion, if you can believe it. Things were better for Christians all of a the sudden. They were favored at court. They, they were free from taxes. It was uh, 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 Constantine actually did a lot of great things for Christians. As a matter of fact, he created he he ceased the gladiator fights, which were used to kill so many Christians. Uh, he reduced the killings of un unwant unwelcomed children. He abolished crucifixion as a form of execution. How about that? Uh, he assumed headship of the church himself. As a matter of fact. Um, he advanced Christians to high offices, and he declared Sunday a day of worship, and he forbid work on Sunday, and he reduced slavery. Now, something about uh, uh, Constantine, a lot of people like to say, and we studied this a few weeks ago with this Sabbath and all that, that, well, he changed the times and the dates and all that. So he never changed the Sabbath, okay? You have to understand that there were three different sects of sun god worshipers in Rome at the time. So they were already worshiping on Sundays, okay? Uh, the Christians were already worshiping on Sundays. Yes, Constantine was very anti-Semitic, uh, but Sunday was already the day in the kingdom already. So when he declared, hey, we're going we're gonna, to uh, have a day off of work uh, on Sunday, everybody was on board because they were pretty much doing it already. And it was also an incredible benefit for the slaves because obviously slaves never get a day off. But even the slaves got a day off. Uh, so pretty interesting. Constantine, that's an interesting study for you guys. If you ever want to do it, just, you know. Um, I'd be happy to help and give you resources. But Constantine, 
whether you believe him or not, you know, he, his, father told, his father had told him that the God of the Christians would win you battle in war, and he was riding into battle outnumbered, and so the story goes that he called out to the Christian God, and he saw the sign of the cross, and, and uh, what he heard said from the heavens was, this will be the sign uh, that will carry you to battle. So they painted crosses on their shields, and thus the symbology of the Knights Templar and all that is born. And, you know, it depends. There are other accounts that say that he converted to Christianity on his deathbed. So, you know, well, what's true of him? We know that he never took, we, ne we know that he never took Saul Invictus. The sun got off the coin during his time. Caesar on one side, Saul Invictus on the other. So was he truly converted? We don't know. But what we do know is that he was much nicer to Christians. As a matter of fact, he did all of those things for Christians. Uh, however, uh, the next year, can I, do we have this in a graphic? I think it's the next graphic. In 361, yeah, 361, no, I don't think that's it. I think it's the last one. In three, it should be a bunch of dates on it. There we go. Uh, 325 AD, we see the Edict of Tolerance. In 361 AD, Julian the Apostate, thank you guys, uh, rest, uh, restored paganism. He didn't like all of the being nice to Christians. That's not how he was raised. In 363, though, just two years later, Jovian becomes Caesar. Uh, Julian, were, which, is, which is where we get the Julian calendar, by the way. He, his reign was short-lived. Uh, but Jovian reestablishes uh, Christianity in 363 AD. Then, guys, are you with me here? This is where it gets really interesting, and we bring it home, okay? In uh, 378 AD... Theodosius made Christianity the state religion. A lot of people want to try to put that on Constantine and want to make a cabal out of that. But it was Theodosius who made Christianity the state religion. And guess what he did? He started, he started forced conversions, thus filled the churches with unregenerates. And forcing them to convert even though they had not, yet they're now in the church. Ambition to rule and heathenism emerged in the world church like it had never been before. Thus, heathenism was Christianized there in 378 AD, not by Constantine. Heathen festivals were converted into Christian ones. Pagan priests slipped into office as Christian priests. And what persecution did not accomplish... In Smyrna, marriage to the world did. Do you see now, church, why? <laughs> why this might be relevant to where we're at? Do you see that, church? And thusly, the Roman Catholic Church was born right there, as we know it, right there. Have you ever... Uh, Let's read. Can we go to this next quote? Let me read this before, before I move on. Let me give you a little bit more backup on that statement. And it's a bold statement to say, thus, there we see it, the Roman Catholic Church being born as we know it in 378 AD. Let's read this. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, they, found, they founded a new center at Pergamus. And that king became Pontifex Maximus the high priest of that pagan system. So he's the high priest of that pagan system. The, from the Babylonians are now in Pergamos. You following? Let's keep reading. The subsequent transfer of the cult from Pergamos to Rome. See, it's traveling. Babylon to Pergamos, Pergamos to Rome. Rome with the appointment of successive Caesars as high priest. Because Caesars became Caesar worship, right? It completed the absorption of Babylonianism into the Roman Church in what year did I say? 378 A.D. Per Hislop and Pember, the Bishop of Rome, 378 A.D. Can I see this next picture? That's um, actually a picture, I believe. There it is. Thank you, Eva. I had that out of order, everybody. That was not Eva's fault. <laughs> Have you ever looked at the pictures of the Roman Catholic Church? Is it just me and thought, that is a weird hat? What is going on with the staff? 
What you see happening in the Roman Catholic Church is Babylon. What you see happening in the Roman Catholic Church is Babylon. That's a Dagon hat, is what that is. Dagon was the fish god. You see the open mouth of the fish on top of his head? Babylon, Assyria. The staff that he's holding just below the crucifix, that's a pine cone. You see that little knot in there? That's supposed to be a pine cone. That is also the staff of Dionysus. Dionysus was a pagan god who was a sexual nymph that could transform into either a man or a woman and was obviously unchaste and, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, the, a god of, it was actually the god of wine and, um, well, you know, my daughter is in here, so you get the point, right? So, what is that doing in the Catholic Church? How does that get into the Catholic Church? Have you ever wondered that? That's how it happens. That's where it happened. And it all goes back to Pergamus. And it all goes back to a mixing of marriage. Was this hour of history in Pergamus in 378 AD, was that hour, was that the hour of history in which the church first officially married the world? Quite possibly. But I'll leave it to you. We're out of time. Can I go back to that last graphic you had, honey, that was out of order? Thank you. What have we learned from the first three churches so far? Let's finish up here. Oh, church, hear my heart on this. I hope you have uh, been edified by this lesson tonight. <sighs> Ephesus, were they the apostolic church? The first church it was all about doctrine. Was Smyrna the persecuted church? Was Pergamus the married church? Can we see the last graphic? What did we learn? Is that there? What have we learned? Don't lose your first love. <laughs> so far, we're only three, three churches in, and this is how badly does every Christian in the United States in this world need to hear this lesson? My goodness. Don't lose your first love. Don't lose your first love. And persecution will come, but when it comes, oh, endure. Endure, because if you endure that persecution, there is a promise for you, overcomer. There is a promise for you. And with all your might <clears throat> and all your heart, whatever you do, avoid spiritual compromise. Avoid spiritual compromise. Don't marry the world. It's proposing, I know, it's proposing daily to you, but don't marry the world, church. Here's your homework for next time. I want you guys to read 1 Kings chapter 21, okay? We're going to start the church of Thyatira next Wednesday. So in this next week, read 1 Kings chapter 21. It'll be very insightful, okay? But for now, with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here tonight... And the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to you. Maybe you've lost your first love. I don't know. Maybe, you're, maybe Satan is attacking you right now. Maybe you hear me say, he can't be every, everywhere at once. And you're one of those people saying, it sure feels like he is. It sure feels like he's knocking in every door in my house. Or maybe you're realizing that you've intermingled your heart and your mind and your faith too much with the world. Maybe you need to become a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more like uh, the church in Ephesus. Maybe you need to get back to some solid doctrine. Mm, whatever it is, I don't know. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if the Lord Holy Spirit is moving on you right now, you know what he's doing. I just want you to lift up your hands and I want you to lift up your heart. And I want you to say this, Jesus, have all of me. Lord, I surrender to you. I admit that I'm a sinner. Lord, and I thank you that you have already forgiven my sins because the cross was enough for every sin that I've got, past, present, and future. And I put my faith in that fact that it is enough to save me that I now put on a robe of your righteousness, not my own, because the tomb on the third day was empty, because death, hell, and the grave could not defeat you, and you took it on from me, that I would not have to go through it in the name of Jesus. 
So Lord, receive me. Thank you for forgiving me. God, continue to make me and mold me, Lord, into the man or woman that you've created me to be. Lord, I don't want to be married to the world anymore. I don't want to have one foot in the world and one foot out of the world. Lord, I don't want to have those ideas mixed up in my heart and my mind. And I don't want to be lusting after and chasing after the things of the world. And I don't want, I don't want bad teachings of the world infecting me, my mind, my heart, my wife and children's hearts and mind. Lord Jesus, help me get back to good, solid doctrine, Father. Lead me, Holy Spirit, into all truth. We rebuke lies. We rebuke Satan. We rebuke the accuser who comes, the accuser of the the brethren. We rebuke him in the name of Jesus. So receive my heart tonight. Pray this with me now. Receive my heart tonight, Lord. Make me new. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, even say this with us. Say, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Come into my heart and make me new, Lord. I want to marry you and you alone. I want you to, to, I'm your bride, Lord Jesus. The bride of Christ, that's to whom I belong. I'm not marrying anybody else. I'm not marrying in this world. And I'll endure for you. I'll endure persecution if need be. I'll, I'll endure slander if need be. I do not want to lose my first love with all my heart. I pour it out to you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. And all the overcomers said, come on, amen. We love you guys. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour his favor out on your lives. May you go in grace and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We love you guys. Good night. We'll see you Sunday morning at 1030.